Hey, this is Stories We Can Tell, and I'm Jim McGinnis, and I am so glad you found me. Many years ago, a friend of mine gave me two cherished gifts, a book of Frost poetry and a John Prine record. Thanks, Ferg, wherever the twain shall meet. From there to Carl Sandburg and Hemingway to Jim Harrison, Jim Lepper, and old Jimmy Buffett, my gumbo of influences may help explain what you hear. Thanks goes out to all the links in the chain. Miles to go. Miles to go. Ain't no change in the weather. Ain't no changes in me. St. Francis Quinn as his truck chugged down the road. Here it was right smack in the middle of winter and it was 75 degrees. He kept singing as he made the turn onto 192 and headed for the ocean. The dogs competed for the passenger seat until he told them both to get in the back. They obeyed and Quinn was rather surprised. He smiled and repeated that J.J. Kale line, ain't no change. Over the weekend, the temperature had found its way into the 40s, but it had warmed up quickly. Quinn had taken the day off from school. He had made a concerted effort to avoid proctoring standardized tests, and today was one of those days. He finished the morning ritual of sitting on the back porch with his coffee and his thoughts, and had written a little something in his journal. Each note started with the weather. It had to. Hell, Jefferson's own journal entry on the 4th of July, the first 4th of July, was simply a Philadelphia weather report. Low of 68, high of 76. Quinn figured Thomas Jefferson was on to something. After jotting down whatever was on his mind, he would often leaf back through the notebook and find a poem or passage that suited his mood. On this day, he found something he wrote about his old college friend. A Connecticut Yankee, he hailed from New London, Coast Guard Academy grad started heading south when the love turned bad to Savannah, then Sebastian, then old Trinidad. Joe, the subject of the verse, roomed with Quinn for a semester at UF. Both of them had done a lot of living before they got to Gainesville. During that time, he taught Quinn two chords on the guitar and how to love Bruce Springsteen. In turn, Quinn introduced him to Jimmy Buffett. In the evenings, they would put on a record and go sit outside on the porch. Joe's turntable was so sensitive he had to tiptoe across the old wood floor to avoid making the record skip. They had even gone to see Buffett in concert there at Alligator Alley, the old gym. Quinn had somehow tripped and fallen down the bleacher steps at intermission. He was unhurt and received a large ovation from the drunken gator crowd. He thanked them with a bow. The two forced a strong bond. Their literary backgrounds and senses of humor seemed to mesh. But Gwen and Joe drifted apart after they graduated, as they both moved back to hometowns. Gwen reconnected with childhood friends and abruptly cut himself off from his college and army buddies. There was no explanation for this, and it bothered Quinn to this day. How come you didn't ask me to stand up for you at your wedding? That was Joe's question. And what was their last conversation? Quinn had no answer. 
he had returned to his place and the root holds of his childhood planted firmly in the sand. The warm breeze out of the south made it feel like something other than winter. He crossed the Ernest Cohenhoven Bridge and turned south on A1A. Two girls on bicycles crossed in front of him and waved as they rode by. I believe those two young ladies are taking the day off also, he said out loud. The dogs paid no attention. They were soaking up the salt air as Bob Marley played over the wind rushing through the truck. Perhaps they sensed the possibility of an ocean dip. But Quinn had to head away south to discreetly practice some civil disobedience. Strange laws governed Central Florida beaches. Limiting a dog's access to the ocean seemed wrong. Quinn decided he could not abide such an injustice. So from time to time, he would sneak them onto the beach. They would frolic in the sand, run through the surf, and be back on the road in half an hour. But this visit was chaotic from the start. A few miles south, he pulled into a beach entrance that he hoped was at least semi-deserted. Upon reaching the sand, Donigan spotted a young couple holding hands about 50 yards down the beach and broke into a dead run straight for them. Shadow decided to follow just for shits and giggles. They both ignored Quinn's shout to stop, and Donigan ran right between the man and woman, then made a sharp left into the waves. The couple must have been a dog couple. Although their romantic walk was interrupted, the sight of Labradors on the beach was joyous. They turned and waved to Quinn, and he apologetically waved back. Donegan and Shadow made their way back in a roundabout fashion, romping through the surf, chasing birds and each other, only stopping to sniff out exotic items on the beach. Chaos isn't all that bad, thought Francis Quinn. Academy grad started heading south when the love turned bad to Savannah, then Sebastian, and old Trinidad. Joe, the subject of the verse, roomed with Quinn for a semester at UF. Both of them had done a lot of living before they got to Gainesville. During that time, he taught Quinn two chords on the guitar and how to love Bruce Springsteen. In turn, Quinn introduced him to Jimmy Buffett. In the evenings, they would put on a record and go sit outside on the porch. Joe's turntable was so sensitive he had to tiptoe across the old wood floor to avoid making the record skip. They had even gone to see Buffett in concert there at Alligator Alley, the old gym. Quinn had somehow tripped and fallen down the bleacher steps at intermission. He was unhurt and received a large ovation from the drunken gator crowd. He thanked them with a bow. Two forced a strong bond. Their literary backgrounds and senses of humor seemed to mesh. But Gwen and Joe drifted apart after they graduated as they both moved back to hometowns. Gwen reconnected with childhood friends and abruptly cut himself off from his college and army buddies. There was no explanation for this and it bothered Quinn to this day. How come you didn't ask me to stand up for you at your wedding? That was Joe's question. What was their last conversation? 
Quinn had no answer. He had returned to his place and the root holds of his childhood, planted firmly in the sand. The warm breeze out of the south made it feel like something other than winter. He crossed the Ernest Cohen-Hoven Bridge and turned south on A1A. Two girls on bicycles crossed in front of him and waved as they rode by. I believe those two young ladies are taking the day off also, he said out loud. The dogs paid no attention. They were soaking up the salt air as Bob Marley played over the wind rushing through the truck. Perhaps they sensed the possibility of an ocean dip, but Quinn had to head away south to discreetly practice some civil disobedience. Strange laws govern Central Florida beaches. Limiting a dog's access to the ocean seemed wrong. Quinn decided he could not abide such an injustice, so from time to time, he would sneak them onto the beach. They would frolic in the sand, run through the surf, and be back on the road in half an hour. But this visit was chaotic from the start. A few miles south, he pulled into a beach entrance that he hoped was at least semi-deserted. Upon reaching the sand, Donegan spotted a young couple holding hands about 50 yards down the beach and broke into a dead run straight for them. Shadow decided to follow just for shits and giggles. They both ignored Quinn's shout to stop, and Donegan ran right between the man and woman, then made a sharp left into the waves. The couple must have been a dog couple. Although their romantic walk was interrupted, the sight of Labradors on the beach was joyous. They turned and waved to Quinn, and he apologetically waved back. Donegan and Shadow made their way back in a roundabout fashion, romping through the surf, chasing birds and each other, only stopping to sniff out exotic items on the beach. Chaos isn't all that bad, thought Francis Quinn. 